Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. For more than a century, oil has been the engine of growth for a society that delivers an unprecedented standard of living to many. We now take for granted that economic growth is good, necessary, even inevitable. But also feel a sense of unease about the simultaneous growth of complexity and the processes and institutions that generate and manage that growth. As societies grow more complex through the bounty of cheap energy, they also confront problems that seem to increase in number and severity. In this era of fossil fuels, cheap energy and increasing complexity have been in a mutually reinforcing spiral. The more energy we have, and the more problems our societies confront, the more we grow complex and require still more energy. So how will our demand how did our demand for energy and technological prowess, the resulting need for complex problem solving, the end of easy oil, conspire to make something like Deepwater Horizon oil spill increasingly likely, if not inevitable. There's a book out. It's called Drilling Down, the Gulf Oil Debacle and Our Energy Dilemma. And uh, we are joined in studio by the co-author Joseph Tainter, who's a professor in the Department of Energy and in Society at Utah State University. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Joseph Tainter, author as well, at other books, and uh, the very influential book, uh, uh, Collapse of Complex Societies. And some of these ideas are furthered in this book. Yes, that's right. Uh, we're also uh, trying to reach, hope to, uh, hope to reach and uh, be joined by the uh, other author of the book, uh, Tad Patsick, from the Department of Petroleum and Geosystems Engineering at University of Texas at Austin. Professor Tainter, uh, I'd like to begin with uh, uh, just a very stark illustration of development of, of society. Uh, in, in the introduction, you quote uh, the late anthropologist Leslie White mm-hmm. as saying that one bomber in World War II used uh, as much energy or more energy than uh, the entire society in, in Stone Age. That, that's right. Uh, White estimated this, I believe, back in the late 1940s. Leslie White was an anthropologist who argued for us to pay close attention to the role of energy in the evolution of human societies, how human societies have grown more and more complex over time. And as just a simple illustration, he calculated that a single bomber flying over Europe during World War II actually consumed more energy than all of the Stone Age societies in Europe had ever consumed. Mm. Uh, and it's, and it's, a, it's a contrast that illustrates just how much our way of life depends on energy. And, and it really does. And we'll, we'll underline that point as we go along. Uh, at the same time, you also write, and I think it's true, it, you know, as, as I read this sentence, I reflected upon my own attitude, we don't tend to think about our energy supply. No, that's right. Um, we live in an era of abundant and fairly inexpensive energy. Now, none of us likes to pay the price of gasoline, but still energy is inexpensive compared to what it has historically been for human societies. In the past, people had to struggle to produce energy. And for the last 12,000 years, energy was primarily produced through laborious farming, through agriculture. Uh, Today, we live in an era where all we have to do is drive to the gas station or flip on a switch in our houses, and we've all grown up in those circumstances, and so we think it's normal. But in fact, this is a fairly recent phenomenon in human history. Uh, We can trace human ancestry back perhaps about 4 million years, and it's only in the last 200 years or so that we've had this situation of inexpensive and abundant energy, and we don't realize how unusual it is, how unusual it is in the broader time span of human history. And if you you really think about it, what we're doing is we're taking energy stored by the sun, from the sun, Mm -hmm. stored perhaps eons ago, yeah. and we have developed technology in just in the last few hundred years to extract that, although it is becoming increasingly hard to, to we're, we're, we're having to increase technology to get at it. Well, that, that's correct. Up until 200 years ago, people had to live on year-to-year solar energy. Uh, now we're relying on solar energy that dates from eons ago, um, formed by past ecosystems. Uh, I've seen one estimate that for every year of petroleum consumption in the world today, it represents 100 years of biomass accumulation in past ecosystems. So we, we essentially what we're doing is we're drawing down a bank account. Mm-hmm. Uh, rather than living off interest, we're drawing down our capital resources. And so the energy that we consume, particularly petroleum, also coal and natural gas, becomes harder and harder to find and to extract. And this is normal with 
procuring any natural resource. The normal course is that we always get the easiest deposits first. Mm -hmm. And as time goes by and we deplete those easy deposits, then we have to go to deposits that are harder and harder to get at and harder and harder to extract. A couple more preliminaries, and then I want to get into some specifics. Of course, the, the, the main specific in your book is the Deepwater Horizon, which is a, a terrible oil spill, great uh, ecological cost as well yes. as economic cost. Uh, and, uh, you know, the other illustrations to the point, fracking, which you were extracting uh, natural gas mostly by horizontal drilling and, you know, hydraulic fracturing. Um, I want to talk about peak oil and mm-hmm. gas. Some scientists think we've already reached it. Mm-hmm. Uh, if we haven't reached it, you know, at some point we will. What will happen when we, when we do reach that? Peak oil is a controversial topic. Um, It's controversial because not everyone believes that we will ever reach it. Peak oil refers to the point where we will have produced half of the recoverable oil reserves in the earth. Now, that's not half of all oil. It's half of recoverable reserves, half of what we can get at. And when that happens, you can't increase production anymore. You may be able to stay at flat production for a while, but ultimately production starts to decline. Now the question, peak oil will be hit eventually. The problem is that you only know it in hindsight, and it's very difficult to predict when it will happen. Hmm. Now we do know that production of what's called conventional oil, which is onshore and fairly shallow, actually peaked in 2005 and has remained steady or declining ever since then. Where we're getting growth in oil now is from unconventional oil, uh, which occurs in places like deep in the Gulf of Mexico or in, in, in the context of what are called, what's called tight oil, which is oil in, in shale, which we get by fracking, or oil in oil sands, such as uh, in, in Alberta. Um, and plus, we're finding oil in very remote places. And the oil that we're finding now are in places that I refer to as deep, dark, cold, remote, and dangerous. Mm-hmm. Um, in other words, it's risky and costly to get at it. Yeah. And, and of course, that's not controversial. At, at, at undisputed point, we're having to go to greater lengths to get, to get oil. That's right. Yeah. That's right. No, no matter whether you believe in, in peak oil or not. And, and, and the important thing to emphasize here is not just that it costs more money to get oil that's in these deep and dark and dangerous places, but it takes more energy. It takes energy to get energy. And it takes more energy to get at the oil so that the net energy we're getting out is progressively declining. We're talking with uh, Joseph Tainter, who's a professor in the Department of uh, Environment and Society at Utah State University, co-author of Drilling Down the Gulf Oil Debacle and Our Energy Dilemma. We're going to get into talking about the uh, energy complexity spiral. Very interesting. And uh, based off of uh, Professor Tainter's uh, earlier work and his influential uh, book, The Complex, uh, the uh, Collapse of Complex Societies, we bring in the co-author of the book, uh, Ted Patsick, who is a uh, professor in the Department of uh, Petroleum Geosystems Engineering at University of Texas, Dawson. We reach him uh, by telephone from Texas. So welcome to the program. Hey, good morning. How good. are you? Uh, thank you for, for joining us today. Uh, by the way, you can join us as well. The number to join this conversation, we'd love to get your perspective on the ideas we're talking about, 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495, or you can join us by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. Professor Pasek, uh I learned quite a bit in the book about these massive oil rigs. I mean, you you see pictures of them. Uh, you in the book uh, took me on a sort of a virtual tour of, of one of one of these uh, behemoths. Uh, I wonder first if you could talk about the cost. Is this true? Uh, uh, a oil rig like the Deepwater Horizon, one billion to to build, five hundred thousand dollars a day to to, main, to maintain to operate. Yes, and yes. Uh, in fact, um, uh, so you know the cost may vary from a little bit less than a billion to more than a billion. These are incredibly large, very complex ships uh, that have a lot of very complicated and expensive equipment uh, and may have a crew of 150-plus people, uh, various uh, contractors and, and people who work on the ship. And when these people work, the fundamental cost is between five $500,000 per day to $1 million 
per day, and when they're very busy, that costs that cost increases to you know a few million dollars a day. That's that's amazing. Uh, so, this, Professor Tender, this goes back to the point. It's it it takes a lot of money to yes. It takes a lot of energy but, but, to to bring energy out. Yes. Yes. Go ahead. I, 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 I actually overheard that that um, that answer of of, of Joe, uh, and it's not money uh, that counts here. Money can always be printed, and and it has been in large quantities. It is the energy and resources uh, that are uh, now brought uh, to bear on these resources, and uh, and of course that extra energy steel, uh, helicopters, pipes, cement, and everything else. Uh, Costs a lot of energy, and the, the, you make the point in the book that uh, money is really just converted energy. Yes, that's correct. Yeah, yeah. It, it it takes energy to produce anything in our society. Yeah, and 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 money really comes from energy, and so that that's the point that it takes a lot a lot of increasing energy to to bring the energy out. Yes, yes. and and therefore uh, I wonder, Professor Tender, if you could talk about this idea of net energy. Well, net, net energy, sometimes referred to as energy returned on energy invested, is simply the, the positive return we get from finding and producing and transporting oil. Uh, in the 1940s, the United States was able to produce oil and gas at a gain of about 100 to 1. In other words, for every barrel we would spend finding and producing oil, we'd get 100 barrels back. And in fact, this is how we fought World War II. We had so much oil at that time that something like 30% of it was simply shut away. Uh, we were able to fight World War II simply by opening valves and providing all the oil that we needed, plus most of the oil that our allies used. Today, um, the EROI, as it's called, Energy Return on Energy Invested, for U.S. oil and gas is down to about 18 to 1 to 15 to 1. So in other words, the trend is downhill, and this trend is irreversible because, of course, we, we always produce from the easiest deposits first, and once those are exhausted, then we have to go to deposits that are harder to get at and harder to produce from and risky, as we found with Deepwater Horizon. Hmm. We're going to continue the discussion after a brief break. Uh, we'll t- I'll, I'll have Professor Patsik uh, take uh, us all on a virtual tour of uh, one of these massive uh, oil rigs. Uh, we're going to be talking about uh, another instance where we're having to increase energy to get energy and increase technology to get energy. That's fracking. Uh, we've, we've thrown out another uh, few examples. And we'll get into talking about this interesting idea of the uh, energy complexity cycle. And what that means, we're talking with Joseph Tainter from Utah State University and Ted Patsick from University of Texas at Austin. Their book is Drilling Down the Gulf Oil Debacle and Our Energy Dilemma. More following this break. Are you a discerning music fan? Bad songs about the Irish smiles, uh, what you got, the Tura and the Lura, and more Lura. I mean, it's crazy, sung by men with high voices. Tired of the musically uninteresting? Want me to sing some of that to you here? Yeah, maybe later. How much later? Later, later. Okay. Worthy, overly earnest. Write songs, try to make the world a better place. There's a contradiction there, partner. We'll have you singing a different tune this weekend. Saturday evening at 6 and Sunday at noon on Utah Public Radio. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Apogee Instruments, a Cache Valley company building small precision sensors that support global research in sustainable food production, renewable energy, and climate change. And area-info.net, providing a social media outlet for personalized press releases, business news, business events, and opinions. Information at area-info.net. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking about energy and complexity of society. Two ideas you may not have associated, but uh, they definitely are. Very interesting. And we'll get into talking about what that means and how do we solve the problems. We're all interested in how, how we solve these energy problems. And our authors have some ideas on that. We're talking with Joseph Tainter who is a professor at Utah State University, author of several books, including The Collapse of Complex Societies. We're also talking with uh, Tad Patsick, who's a professor at the University of Texas at Austin. Their book is Drilling Down, the Gulf Oil Debacle and Our Energy Dilemma. They take as their uh, the central theme the, the Gulf Oil Disaster, Deepwater Horizon. Of course, this transfers to other 
increases in technology, and we, we have to put more energy in to get more energy out. Uh, that's that uh, decrease in net energy that we've been talking about. And uh, it gets us in talking about uh, fracking and other problems or other opportunities, depending on the way you see it. You're welcome to join this conversation at 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495, or upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. Professor Patsick, I wonder if you could uh, take me on a tour of, of, of one of these oil rigs. You used the word ship earlier, today, and, and that's, yes. ap- that's apropos, right? I think of this as stationary. This really is a ship that through thrusters you know, maintains its position. Correct. Well, so later on, that ship will be replaced by a production platform of sorts, which will be moored one way or another uh, to the sea bottom, sea floor. But in order to drill this well far away from the shore, you need to have a very complex drill ship, which can actually move in and out of the drilling location and is kept at at a more or less constant position by multiple thrusters that uh, jet water and operate uh, through communication with satellites so that the ship essentially remains uh, at a uh, constant location and just rotates uh, around the, the center of gravity. Um, those ships can uh, drill wells in up to 10, 12,000 feet of water. And uh, once you hit the uh, seafloor, you, you can go another um, you know, two, three miles down to your reservoir. So these are incredibly major engineering um, endeavors that need to be completed in a safe manner and in a timely manner. The ship is connected to the seafloor through an uh, umbilical cord, you know, uh, which is called riser, uh, which contains inside a thick, big steel pipe, the drill pipe and the systems for exchanging uh, uh, the drilling mud, the drilling fluids with the well. Um, and at the seafloor, you have a, a big contraption, which is called the blowout preventer, you know, which was famous during the BP Macondo uh, accident, uh, whose role it is to uh, stop flow of fluids out of the well should there be an, an accident and, and loss of control. And then, you know, beneath that, you use your drill pipes and drill bits and steel pipes, which are called casing, to construct a well, which is going to, you know, to a depth of, you know, 18,000 feet or 20,000 feet. Uh, Or in in the new wells that we are faced with, the total length of the wellbore may be as uh, as long as 30,000 feet. Um, Well, so it's it's so think of this as a a major mobile uh, drill rig, uh, highly automated, operating in an environment in which uh, it goes up and down and, and, and heaves both sides, and, uh, and it all has to be automatically uh, corrected so that you don't break the umbilical cord. Uh, and then you have lots of uh, difficult uh, situations once you start drilling, uh, where you encounter very high pressures, pockets of gas, which then you need to handle by being very careful and adjusting the drilling mud density to overcome the pressure of the gas. Mm. So in, in, the upshot of it is that you may spend you know, a few months uh, drilling such a well and completing it, and the cost of the well uh, can certainly be in excess of $100 million dollars and at times $200 million per well. And, and, and if you compare this with early wells in East Texas, where you drill to a couple of hundred of feet and you punch the hole and all oil kept on flowing and there was no other expense, you can see the difference. Because once uh, the drill ship leaves and the well is in fact hooked up through another umbilical cord and seafloor facility to a production platform, Still, there needs to be a pipeline to to shore, right? Or there need to be special tankers that pick up that oil. So there needs to be a huge infrastructure that keeps on producing the well once it's been safely drilled and completed. Hmm. It's a, it's amazing the, the the complexity needed here, Professor Tainter. As I'm hearing about this, uh, 
on the one hand, it's admirable, right? It's it's it's, it's our can-do attitude. Yes. If we have to go out miles to see and, and drill down miles, deep, dark, and dangerous, as, as you said, we can do this. Yes. Um, on the other hand, obvious problems. Yes, yes, there are indeed. And, and of course, as we saw with Deepwater Horizon, these, uh, these drilling rigs uh, – can get us into situations that are risky. Certainly, the risk is higher than than with um, uh, simpler operations that where you might be drilling on land and essentially just sticking a straw in the ground. Uh, there's a wonderful book that came out about 1980 by a sociologist by the name Charles Perrault called Normal Accidents, which deals with precisely the situation that happened with the Deepwater Horizon, the Macondo Well. Uh, and, and what he looks at is accidents in complex systems where we always tend to, to blame human operators for the accidents. But in fact, he points out that these accidents occur simply because the systems are so complex that the parts interact in ways that were never anticipated. And, and, and this is probably – this is a concept that probably helps us un- understand what happened on Deepwater Horizon, that, that we are dealing with exceptionally complex technologies that probably no single person on the drilling rig fully understood. Hmm. Uh, uh, Professor Patsett, do you agree with that? Is it uh, – what happened on the Deepwater Horizon? Well, <laughs> um, yes and no. So, 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 so Joe makes a valid point that the system is complex – and no single person can fully understand um, the, the, the interactions within that system. However, uh, the, the, the particular case of the BP Macondo accident also has to do with many things that went wrong and didn't have to. And so the, the first thing that, that went wrong were many and, and rather arbitrary changes to the well design done on the fly on the rig with little consultation with the onshore specialists uh, and with little feedback. Uh, the second one was, well, uh, misinterpretation of, of data, uh, which is explained by the complexity uh, of the system. And, and there were several other reasons described in, uh, in the book, and I will encourage the readers to actually go and read the book. Um, which have to do with the, the mud weight evacuation of mud, you know, absence of a cement plug, uh, casing lockdown, and, and then, of course, these are all sort of many, many manifestations of things that didn't go quite right. But the main thing that didn't go quite right was low circulation rate, which didn't unseat the, the valves at the bottom tip of the well, um, that were supposed to seal the well. They never sealed the well. And then, of course, this in conjunction with the cement that didn't quite work caused uh, a break-in uh, of the fluids from the reservoir, which then went up the production casing and blew up the, the well and the ship. Uh, so so, so there were so 80% or, or more of, of these uh, large accidents offshore and onshore are caused by human error. And, and human error that was unchecked at the time or was unnoticed at the time. And I have to say, in fairness to the industry, that um, many, many procedures have been adjusted and many attempts have been made, and rather successfully, to eliminate uh, sources of random human error. Mm-hmm. And, and again, I, I think that the, the um, author that describes uh, this type of approach, probably in, in the best popular way, is of course Nassim Nicholas Taleb, and uh, I would also encourage people to read his Anti-Fragile, um, it, which essentially amounts to making your system, um, composing your system in such a way that uh, the more you stress it, stress it, uh, the stronger it gets. And, and uh, Taleb gives an example of, you know, of somebody sending a uh, expensive um, uh, vase, uh, and of course, if you do that, you put on the parcels, uh, on the parcel, fragile, don't drop, this way up, you know, handle with care, and and so on, and and, and that way of looking at a complex system is in fact very correct. A complex system is like that glass vase. Many, many things have to align and work together 
just right so the system doesn't fail. Mm. On the other hand, you could imagine tweaks to the system and then uh, having a, a way of packaging it such that you could write on the package, drop me, kick me, do whatever you want, and I won't break. And, and in, in fact, that's exactly what has been happening um, uh, with the industry uh, in the last four years. Uh, I think very serious attempts have been made to control um, human error and random variations uh, in, in execution. Right? You can have the best plan, you can have the, the best design, but if in the execution of that plan and design, uh, changes occur, which are unpredictable uh, and unchecked, then the whole plan goes you know, through the window. Mm. And so what we're trying to make sure these days in the industry is that whatever we agree upon, we don't actually vary that much. Or if we do vary it, there is many eyes are looking at the changes and are controlling the human reactions. So, uh, given given that the, the, these uh, these attempts, it sounds like you're you're hopeful, you're positive that they will have a, a positive effect. But looking at it overall, as as um, you go deeper and deeper, further out into the ocean, uh, the systems get more complex. Does that make it more likely overall that something like Deepwater Horizon would happen again? Well, um, you know, it, it, it's. It, Okay, so, so you can never eliminate risk from these extremely dangerous operations in extremely inhospitable, difficult environment. And I think Joe said it very eloquently. Uh, what you try to do is, is uh, you know, lower these risks as much as you can through multiple barriers and multiple methods. So there is never just one way of avoiding the risk. There should be, you know, one, two, three, four ways of avoiding the risk, and if you know some of them fail, there will be one that won't, and 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 that's essentially the approach uh, that I described um, just a minute ago. Uh, if you have that approach, you can actually kick your system and do many things to it, and it will not break, and that's essentially what the industry is trying to do. Mm. Having said that. There is, there is not an operation, uh, a large industrial-scale operation, whether onshore or offshore, whether in the oil industry or nuclear industry or any other industry, that carries with it zero risk. Hmm. Um, I think I'm hearing maybe a little disagreement between Professor Pasek and Professor Tainter on, on you know, danger of uh, likelihood, perhaps, of, uh, of a large-scale disaster. Uh, you, you both, you each probably agree about the cost. There's increasing cost, I think, yes. of uh, of drilling farther out and, and deeper and fracking, etc. Uh, by the way, you're you're welcome to uh, join this conversation if you would like. Uh, the number is one eight hundred eight two six one four nine five, or you can join us at upraxis at gmail dot com. We're talking with. Uh, Tad Patsick, who's with the University of Texas at Austin, and Joseph Tainter, who's with Utah State University. I'd like to get into, uh, you have a follow-up, and then I'd like to get into this energy complexity spiral. Yeah, no, this, this is Tainter here. I, I wouldn't say that I disagree with Tad. What I would point yeah. out is that as you build redundancy and safety systems in, of course, you add complexity and cost. And this illustrates one of the points that we make in the book, is that complexity grows to solve problems. It can be problems of exploration, problems of production, or just problems of safety. But complexity always has a cost. This is basic thermodynamics. More complex systems are more costly. And so this lowers the overall net energy that we get every time we add more and more safety into these systems, which is a good thing and an absolutely necessary thing, as we've seen. I wonder, uh, Professor Tanner, if you could uh, take us through, give us your you know, capsule uh, version of the energy complexity spiral. And then we can expand on that. Yes. Um, until about 200 years ago, about 90% of economies involved the production of energy. Now, this was mainly through agriculture. Now, when 90% of your economy involves the production of energy, that doesn't leave much of your economy left over to do other things. Uh, you can't have a consumer society. 
you can only have a few wealthy individuals. These were societies like in the Middle Ages where there truly was a 1% who owned 90% of property. Uh, and through fossil fuels, we've largely overcome that. Fossil fuels have given us an opportunity to indulge in things we could never have done before. Uh, because of fossil fuels, energy, I think, is now down to maybe 3 4 5% of the economy. I'm not sure of the exact figure. And so it allows us to do a lot more things. It allows us to educate nearly all people. It allows us to consume things uh, that past people could never have dreamed of. Uh, it, it allows us to live in comfortable homes and to have abundant clothing, to travel, to have automobiles, to have airplanes, to, to have a very large and capable military, to have a universal health care system, all of the things that, that past societies simply couldn't accomplish. And so what has happened is that as we've gained abundant and inexpensive energy, our, this has allowed our societies to grow more and more complex. It's allowed us to do things and consume things and indulge in things that were never possible before. So having abundant energy allows a society to grow more complex. At the same time, Solving problems, as we see in the technology of oil drilling, for example, also grows, causes societies to grow complex, and, and this in turn requires more energy. So inexpensive energy allows complexity to grow, and then solving problems requires complexity to grow, taking still more energy. This is what I call the energy complexity spiral. Uh, and so maybe give me an example from, uh, from the past. You know, what do you do? Roman Empire, uh, Byzantia. Yeah, one of the things that we did in the book is look at historical case studies. Um, I work in, I, I worked previously in why ancient societies would often collapse and, and shifted from that into looking at what makes societies sustainable. And one of my favorite case studies is the Roman Empire, which experienced a major crisis in the third century AD, and the empire nearly came to an end. There were foreign invasions, there were civil wars. Uh, over a period of 50 years, there was one emperor after another, and, and the empire nearly collapsed in the 3rd century. But toward the end of the 3rd century and early in the 4th century, a couple of reforming emperors came along who basically rescued the situation for another 170 years or so. And what they did was to greatly increase the scale and complexity of the Roman government and the Roman army. Uh, they created many more provinces and provincial administrations. This is an increase in complexity, and this prevented re uh, governors from rebelling uh, because they now ruled smaller territories. Uh, they increased the size of the army. Uh, they increased the size and the complexity of the bureaucracy, but all of this had a cost. So to pay for this, they had to tax peasants more heavily um, until we get to the point where uh, you hear stories of peasants uh, not having enough food and even having to sell their children into slavery because they couldn't feed them. Peasants going to the cities to look for food because they didn't have any on their own farms because the tax man had taken it. Uh, and, and so what we find is that the Roman Empire began eventually um, to shift from living off interest, which you might call what you might call interest, which would be yearly agricultural production, to consuming its capital resources, its capital being producing lands and peasant population. Uh, peasants would leave the land, tax revenues rent went down, and ultimately the empire was undermined. So an exercise in solving problems in the third century caused the empire to grow in size and complexity and costliness, but ultimately undermined its ultimate survivability. Hmm. If if I yes go ahead uh, I think Professor Patrick wants to say if something. If I may add something uh, along these lines, first of all, Joe and I really don't disagree. We may sometimes put you know different emphasis on the okay. details, but the big picture is what just Joe told you. But let me just fast forward to the modern civilization, and 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 you can actually show and and, and we do in the book uh, that uh, petroleum. And, and natural gas, the liquid fuels and, 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 the, and the gas, act as blood uh, in, in the modern society. They completely permeate every nook and cranny of the society. And in fact, the wealth of the society scales with their use just as, as uh, mammalian metabolism uh, scales with the body weight. So 
the more use of hydrocarbons, the better, the, 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 the more complex and the wealthier is the society. And the, the type of curve that all countries on the planet follow is identical to how mammalian metabolism scales with the body weight with micro, from the microshrew to the bluefin whale. And so I, what I would like to, to kind of point out to, to, to the listeners is that it is not, uh, you know, sort of optional to have this huge energy flux through a society which wants to remain complex. It is actually necessary. Hmm. So to the degree that this energy flux, this lot of energy flowing to the society per unit time um, diminishes, the society will have to simplify because there simply will be less energy to do all these other wonderful things that, that Joe uh, just described. Hmm. We're going to take a, br- a break, um, and when we come back, more with Professor Tainter and Professor Patsik. Uh, their book is Drilling Down the Gulf Oil Debacle and Our Energy Dilemma. We're, we've gotten into talking about the central premise, which is this energy complexity spiral. And um, I'll, I'll, I'll see what uh, our professors think. If, if I take immediately, Professor Tainter, your Roman example, and I apply it to today and look at the future... Um, it makes me more. That makes me pessimistic. I'm I'm looking at doom and gloom. Maybe you can dispel that notion. We'll talk about it following the break. Don't experience dead flowers the day after you've received an arrangement. This Thursday on the Zesty Garden, a florist will give you the inside scoop on how to take care of your flowers, whether you're the receiver or the giver. Then Shane Taylor from Cactus and Tropicals helps you keep and grow the Phalaenopsis or moth orchid. Hint. Don't use ice cubes. Then Nancy Williams reads from her favorite passage about a frog invasion. It's Flowers and Frogs this Thursday morning at 10 o'clock on the Zesty Garden. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Utah Humanities Council, empowering Utahns to improve their communities through active engagement in the humanities. Online at utahhumanities.org. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We have another 10 minutes or so in the program. The book is Drilling Down the Gulf Oil Debacle and Our Energy Dilemma. And we're talking with Professor Joseph Tainter from Utah Utah State University to Tad Patsick from University of Texas at Austin. They're looking specifically at the Deepwater Horizon disaster, but uh, more specifically this idea of the energy complexity spiral. And before the break got into some very interesting ideas which may not bode well for us in, in modern society. Professor Patsik pointed out that uh, the petroleum is not optional for our society. It's the very lifeblood. Uh, and Professor Tainter gave us an example from a Roman society where they were able to stave off collapse for another century or two by increasing complexity, but then in the end it did collapse. Mm-hmm. So Professor Tainter, if, if I apply that uh, those two concepts and this energy complexity spiral to today um, leads me to be pessimistic. What uh, what say you? Well, we we need to look at what uh, what people sometimes refer to as technological optimism. The optimists and many conventional economists believe that uh, that as something like petroleum becomes scarcer or hard to get, that that we will simply rely on technical innovation to find ways to get at it. And this reflects the the deep-seated belief in our society, our our deep-seated faith in technology to solve all problems. And certainly to this point, uh, this has been the case. We can see wondrous technology like Deepwater Horizon or other rigs in the Gulf of Mexico. We can see this new technology of hydraulic fracturing called fracking that's, that's, that's increasing our production of oil and gas. Uh, but at the same time, one of the things that both uh, Professor Pacek and I talked about in the book, and this was a conclusion we found we had reached independently before we started working together, is that the productivity of our system of innovation is actually declining. Uh, in my case, I joined with a couple of colleagues, uh, Deborah Stromsky of the University of North Carolina and Jose Lobo of Arizona State University, to do a study on the productivity of patenting in the United States. And what we found is that over the last generation, the productivity of patenting, in other words, the productivity of our most fundamental innovations, has gone down by over 20 percent. 
Uh, in other words, it's becoming harder and harder, more and more complex, and more and more expensive to achieve an innovation. Now, you wouldn't realize this if you go into an electronics store, but in fact, you have to look at the underlying statistics to see the pattern. If we take and project that one to two generations into the future, if we project a rate of a 20% decline every generation, uh, our system of innovation is going to have to change dramatically. It's ultimately be going to become either too expensive or too unproductive to continue in the form that we've known it. So this is one of the reasons why I feel that technological innovation will not forever be able to counteract the problem of resource depletion, that we are going to have to deal with depletion sometime in the next few decades. Mm. Professor Patsick, do you, do you yes. agree with that? you see a similar trend? Well, I would say amen to, to what Professor Tainter just said. Uh, but, but, and let me just add a, a few thoughts. So we live in a cocoon of fossil fuels, of which the most precious one is crude oil and the next one is natural gas. We feel that the, in this cocoon will last forever and will make it so because we'll use you know, the ever more wondrous technology uh, to, to, to make it so. Okay? And, and it won't. And so it behooves us to use what we have, this miracle of cheap, reliable energy, to set ourselves up for times where that energy, when that energy will not be as readily available. And so to restructure our society and, and restructure uh, the way we move, the transportation, so that we can then uh, do many things with much less energy per unit time, much less power. And that is something that we're not doing. And we're not set up to do uh, uh, as, human, as humans, as human species. We do not look at an incipient brick that just might fall onto our head. We only look at a brick that is falling onto our head, called collective head. And so in order for us to use what we have and we waste left and right uh, better, we would have to have many more discussions like this one uh, in this program, but these discussions are not happening. Uh, and in fact, something completely opposite is happening, is the sort of this loud rah, 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 uh, we will have oil and gas forever, we can, you know, be increasing production and consumption, nothing will ever happen. And that is actually absolutely untrue. And the more people think about this and realize it, the better off we will be as a society. Mm. Professor Tainter, uh, what's the solution? We often talk about alternative energy, but ramping up alternative energy, can, can that fuel the standard of living we've come to, um, you know, enjoy? Can that, can that fuel the complexity which has produced the life that we have now? Well, it, it's clear that we should be starting a transition now to alternative energy sources. Uh, certainly, clean, renewable energy in, in, in the future should be one of our major sources. And, I, and I'm one who's always favored nuclear, that, that I think we have to have nuclear in the mix. The problem is that renewable energy is low-density energy. It does not have the energy density that fossil fuels have. And what that means is that things like wind power and solar energy will take a lot of land. Um, in, in an area like the Southwest, you know, with the beautiful landscapes of the Southwest, there's going to be resistance to covering those landscapes with, say, solar panels. Uh, in an area like the Great Plains, where we have a lot of wind, farmers might be happy to have wind generators on their land because they can still farm or graze the land at the same time. But it would take a lot of land and a lot of infrastructure to produce the energy per person that we have today entirely through renewables. And it would take a transition of several decades. So it needs to be started. That transition needs to be started now. Now, there's an interesting study by a fellow named David McKay who wrote a book called Renewable Energy Without the Hot Air that focused largely on England uh, but also on the U.S. One of the things he points out is that if you were to produce the energy per person in England, Scotland, and Wales that they enjoy today entirely through renewables, it would take almost all the land of England, Scotland, and Wales, which is clearly not possible. But this is an illustration of just how 
just how much land needs to be taken up to produce renewable energy at the rate at which we enjoy it today. Now, in the United States, of course, we have much more land and we're well endowed uh, with sun in many areas and, and with wind in many areas. So we would not have such a challenge. For us, I think the challenge is largely the will to do it. Hmm. Professor Patsik. Yes, well, I would add to that, since I'm a robust energy person, is that we have to use less energy. And, and that will inevitably cause us to slow down, and perhaps we'll have more time to stop and think as opposed to constantly tweet or, or do Facebook and, and never talk to a living person, never have time to reflect. <laughs> um, and so, so I would say that a little bit of slowdown in our society would go a long way towards improving our quality of life, and it also will cause us to use a little bit less energy and maybe think more about how we use energy. And, you know, and I could give you examples of a class I teach when I ask students how much energy they use per month in terms of electricity or gasoline. Most of them have no idea. They're engineers. They, they never even looked at their bill. That, that's something that doesn't register. And, and yet they are using, uh, let's say, 1,000 kilowatt hours per month in Texas here in electricity. You know what that is? It's uh, pulling up a... a um, Hyundai Salantra 1,000 times up the Eiffel Tower per month. That's what we're doing, never mm. thinking about this. Mm -hmm. And yeah. so we need to perhaps pull that Salantra 800 times or 700 times mm. a month. Interesting. Professor Tainter, this, this, uh, Professor Pasek is, is suggesting sort of a bottom-up. We, we usually look at systems and we think of top-down and, and mm -hmm. implacable forces. Uh, what do you think about this idea of... Uh, lifestyle changes simplifying personally, and that, that could have an effect. Well, it, economists would say, and on this point I agree with them, that people respond to incentives. I don't know whether people will voluntarily abstain from consuming on the basis of abstractions about the distant future. That's just not how most people work. Yes. People respond to incentives, and the major incentive, the most consistent incentive in our lives is price. And probably energy needs to be more expensive than it is now and that we've been accustomed to because that is what would truly bring about conservation. Hmm. What do you think, Professor Patsik? Well, uh, I would answer in words of, um, of a CEO of uh, Chevron who said $100 per barrel today is the new $20 per barrel. Uh, what he meant is that the cost of recovering oil has gone up fivefold. And that means that the price of gasoline and diesel fuel and everything else pretty much in our society will be going up. And so, uh, so that incentive will be provided by Mother Nature, whether economists know about it or not. And so, um, but I agree with, with, with Professor Tainter that it's very difficult for people to think ahead and adjust their behavior. Uh, and so they need to have incentives to do so. But these incentives are coming their way, ready or not. Mm. We'll, uh, we'll end the program there. We're out of time and uh, suggest that you uh, read more about this in Drilling Down the Gulf Oil Debacle and Our Energy Dilemma. The uh, authors have been with us. Joseph Tainter from Utah State University has been with us in studio. Thank you so much. My pleasure. And uh, Tad Patsik from University of Texas at Austin has been with us uh, on telephone. Thank you. Thank you. Coming up tomorrow, we're going to look back in Montana history with uh, the, an incident or several years there where vigilantism was on the rise. We'll look at why and uh, what that has to say about uh, due process, rule of law today. The book is Montana Vigilantes. That's our subject tomorrow. Hope you'll join us. And thanks for listening today. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan, open Monday through Saturday until 3, with a changing menu including an adobo marinated chicken panini with cilantro pesto, daikon sprouts, and provolone cheese. Commentator Thad Box I took a job at Utah State University and moved to Cache Valley in 1959. When I returned to Texas on vacation, one of my old uncles asked, Thaddeus, why did you go way off up there where you don't know nobody? 
I generally say it's because of mountain beauty and easy access to public lands. But the major reason is because of people. One group I grew up with academically at USU. The second group is the good Mormon folks I live amongst. My first opinion of Mormons came from Zane Gray novels where Mormons had few redeeming values. In the army, a Mormon kid named Truman Angel was assigned to my squad. He didn't have horns. He did his job well, never complained, and helped others when needed. And in graduate school, my major professor was Vernon Young, a hard-working, no-nonsense man who expected his students to respect people in the land. He never mentioned that he was a Mormon bishop. He demonstrated every day the fine man that he was and what he expected from us. The director of the Wildlife Refuge, where I did my research, was Clarence Cottom, from a little village near St. George. He took me in tow, introduced me to giants in my profession, and demonstrated what it was to be a true professional. Like Dr. Young, he never taught church to me. When we arrived in Logan, we rented a house in a Mormon neighborhood. We took the seven lessons, parted friends with the teachers, and have lived happily among Mormon neighbors ever since. But being a Utah Mormon is both a lifestyle and a religion. In decades of recruiting faculty at USU, I found that non-Utah Mormons had more trouble integrating into cash culture than non-Mormons did. Not only did the new non-Utah LDS professors have to establish their professional reputation, but they were expected to participate in a lifestyle that was new to them. If my old uncle were still alive, I would tell him that I live way off up there because I know and love a lot of people. The scenery and the public lands are a real bonus. But the biggest advantage to living in Utah is that, like, like the Mormons I knew outside Utah, I am freed from the cultural demands that are expected of my kin who remained in the Texas hills. I do not have to defend the indefensible antebellum South anymore or pretend that all things Texas are the best in the world. Living in Cache Valley allows me to be judged not against my tribal culture, but for who I really am. This is Thad Box. Waste not. A small drip leak on a faucet leaks up to 15 gallons per day. That's 450 per month. So make sure to check your faucets regularly. Another tip, turn off the water while brushing your teeth and save 25 gallons a month. Waste not is made possible by the Logan City Public Works Water Conservation Department. Information at loganutah.org slash publicworks. This is Steve Tracy, bringing more to life. For the first time, adult couples have more parents than children. How do you prepare for this new role? Communication is key to success in any job. The role of caretaker is no exception. Begin with your parents' wishes. Talk to them about personal goals, housing, legal, financial, and medical decisions. Some of these conversations may be easy. Some will be difficult. Start the conversation now to bring more to their lives. Support for Bringing More to Life on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our listeners and the Sunshine Terrace Foundation in Logan, advancing wellness, independence, dignity, and comfort. Information at sunshineterrace.com. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan.